Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So about to start a new series in just a second. It's going to be a quick one, two weeks. So I already want to give you a heads up about the next series um, just because it's coming. I'm super excited about it. Through the rest of October, I'll start on the uh, 22nd. I think that's right. Um, maybe not. 15th, actually. Called Holy Ghost Stories. And uh, we have a ton of cool stuff, creative stuff planned, but I'm really excited about the subject matter for this series um, for three weeks. So we're going to go big for this. It's going to be a lot of fun. That'll start on the 15th. So it's a great time to invite Holy Ghost Stories. Um, But today I'm starting a brand new series called Unbelievable, Grown-Up Questions About the Bible. And so I'm going to do this for two weeks. Um, This is daunting. So I was going to say, like, I'm going to give you a 5,000-foot view. It's not even 5,000. It's like 50,000 foot. Um, This subject, man, I've I've studied for about 20 years. It's hard to um, put this in a talk for two weeks at street level, but I'm going to do my best. But the whole thing is kind of um, written, or I want to communicate to a couple groups. The first one is this. This series is basically for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. And I don't know what your experience was as children, but most of us, even in what is called, if you're familiar with this post-Christian culture, you're introduced to the Bible or you have some familiarity with the Bible. But then here's the other group that this series is for. The series is also for adults who were introduced to the Bible as adults by other adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Are you tracking with me? So that's who this series is for. And like I just said, most of us have some understanding of the Bible. Like you have some understanding of stories, even if you can't connect them, um, you've heard certain things and like there's some familiarity. But most of us don't know the story of the Bible. But here's what I would contend. I think as important as knowing what is in the Bible is knowing the story of the Bible because what you will find out, and some of you have already found this out, is that the backstory actually gives extraordinary understanding to the story. And if you don't know it, and most in our culture don't know it, it's easy to discount it. Now, I get like as kids, this doesn't really matter. Like you were given answers in Sunday school, if anybody grew up in that, um, increasingly less within our church, but there's a few. Um, But if you grew up, somebody gave you the Bible, they gave you the answers and you walked away and you've never really questioned it and that's great. But generally the answers you get as kids don't always hold up as you become adults. Like one of the things with my kids, they will ask me certain questions and I won't lie, but I will accommodate to their capacity with the answers sometimes, right? Um, That's just how it is. Like the first time your kids ask you where babies came from, that's going to be like, you know, PG answer. And then later it gets more sophisticated because their frontal lobes have not fully developed. Like there's certain things they can't handle. But then as adults, some of these questions become extraordinarily important. And what I would contend is, if you don't know the story of the Bible, it gets really easy to discount the stories in the Bible. And for some of you, that maybe is right where you're at right now, 
where you've walked away, you've questioned, and you're not really sure. Maybe you're listening via unfiltered radio or online somewhere. It's like, I don't know if I can believe this anymore. And once what was like, I, I believe it, you had a ton of faith. Now all of a sudden that faith is wavering. And you are either on the verge of walking away, you did walk away, or you just have a ton of doubts that you're grappling with. Now here's what makes this really difficult. For most of us, the way we got our Bible is not the way we got the Bible. For some of you, um, you got the Bible as a kid, and I didn't feel like anybody related this to the 9 a.m., so I'll see if you do. Again, like um, uh, increasingly, so many of you don't have a church background. Um, but for some of us, we got our Bible saran wrapped um, to us back in the day. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like it was saran wrapped and it was given to you. And then you like, you put the name in it. Some of us got it at VBS. Does anybody even know what VBS is? Am I, am I speaking to four people? Um, so that's how you got your Bible. Now, others of you, because you know, you're, you know, have been born a little bit more recently, somebody directed you to the YouVersion app or some other app where you got the Bible on your phone. But for a lot of us in our culture, we've been introduced to the Bible somehow, some way, even if we know very little about it. But the way that you were introduced to the Bible is not how we got the Bible. And for most of us, here's how it happened. For me, it was saran wrapped and given to me. And somebody said, hey, this is the Bible. It's God's word. It's 100% true. Believe all of it dot, 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 before I had read any of it. But that's how it goes, right? Here, here's the Bible. Here's the date of VBS. You made a decision. It's all God's word. It's 100% true. Believe all of it. But that is not how we got the Bible. Now, for some of you, your story was different because you grew up in a faith tradition where they didn't encourage you to read the Bible. So maybe you got it, but there was like an intermediary or a priest and they interpreted it for you. And so nobody really used their Bibles or read their Bibles. But my point is just this. Whatever your childhood understanding of faith in the Bible was, for a lot of us, that has followed us into adulthood. And we kind of um, filter and interact based on what we were told more than anything else. I love this quote by Karen Armstrong. I forget which book it was. Um, maybe some of you have read her, but she makes this quote in the middle of one of her books. And she says, um, for a lot of like kids growing up, you were introduced to the Santa phenomenon and faith in the Bible at the same time. And while your understanding of the Santa phenomenon matured, your understanding of faith in the Bible did not. And what happens is, and I'm incredibly passionate about this because I have these conversations all of the time because we have a generation that after a sophomore English professor, because they've been given a house of cards kind of faith, walk away from faith because they don't believe the Bible or that they don't believe they can believe the Bible. And part, part of it is because they were given very simplistic answers as a kid and that faith and understanding never grew up. And it's easy to just walk away from the whole thing. So for some of you, here's the couple camps we have. You're in the, um, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Amazing, kind of. But honestly, I think even if you're there and your faith has never hit a bump and you're like, I just think it's all true and I believe it, but you're not really sure why you believe it, I think you should have some answers to why you believe it. And then there's another um, part of us, and you know, maybe more than we want to admit, where it's not easy because somebody pointed out what else was in the Bible. And when somebody else pointed out what else was in the Bible, um, you were kind of tempted to walk away because you started to be confronted with questions that nobody encountered in Sunday school, answers that you never got. And so you decided rather than look the other way, you just started to walk away. 
But my point for all of us, whether you're the, the Bible says, it, I believe it, that settles it, or I don't know, there's some stuff in there. I, nobody gave me answers to this thing, and I, like, I'm not really sure. This series is incredible for both crowds. This series is important to both groups of us. Now, here's the thing um, as you start to talk about the Bible. And again, this is like 50,000 foot, and I'm not even sure that does it justice. I'm going to be way up here and try to put this at street level for two weeks, which is really hard. But the story of the Bible does not begin in the beginning, to the surprise of some of you. The story of the Bible actually begins in the middle. The story of the Bible actually begins with um, a Greek doctor, highly educated by the name of Luke, Dr. Luke. And he sits down to write an account of the events of Jesus' life. And he had a very wealthy friend, wealthy, wealthy landowner friend by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus had heard the stories. He had talked to eyewitnesses in the first century. And he actually placed his faith and trust in Jesus in the first century, a few years later, believing that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God. And so Theophilus, this wealthy landowner, goes to Luke and says, hey, can you put together an orderly, documented, eyewitness-driven account of all of the events and the messages of Jesus' life. And Luke's like, yeah, I got you. And so Luke writes his account, and he starts with this in Luke chapter one, verse one, where he says, help me out with the first word. Many. Many Many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been, help me out one more time, what? Fulfilled among us. And this is really important. You have to track with me. But if I bore you, just try to stay with me to the end. Something happened, this is so important, that was worth documenting. And the reason that the Bible begins in the middle and not at the beginning where some of you think it begins is because if something had not happened, there would have been nothing worth documenting. And when Luke sits down for his good friend Theophilus to document the life and message of Jesus, just so we're real clear on this, he had nothing to gain by that endeavor, He wasn't getting other book deals on the side. He was not going to garner more followers. He was not going to be popular. I mean, just so you know, most of the people that documented the life, message, and events of Jesus ended up losing their lives for it, which is a question you kind of have to grapple with. And so Luke sits down to document this, and and here's the, the unusual thing about many. There are many accounts or many who have carefully investigated everything. What's interesting about the first century, and maybe you know this, is there wasn't many accounts of anything. There wasn't many documented accounts or multiple documented accounts of the same event or the same messages or person anywhere in that culture. And yet Luke says, because something happened, there's many that have drawn up accounts of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And then verse three, and with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this wealthy, living large landowner. But here's the thing you have to understand, which is, I mean, this is kind of goes without saying, but it doesn't because this is how many of us think. When Luke sits down to interview eyewitnesses and document, he was not writing the Bible. Luke has no idea there's going to be a Bible. He's not like, well, it's time. I'm going to start writing the Bible. It's going to be the bestseller of all times, and I'll get no royalties. I'm just going to get killed for it. But he's not thinking that. He has no idea. This is so important. Stay with me. He has no idea that anything is ever going to exist called the B-I-B-L-E. 
No idea that there will be a Bible. No idea there'll be assembled documents. When Luke sits down to write and document, he's simply writing and documented all of the eyewitness accounts of what happened through the life and message of Jesus. And there is overwhelming evidence because all the people are still alive. In fact, you could put it this way. Luke was creating an orderly account of the events that tell us the story or the how and the why of the story of the Bible. Not just the stories in the Bible, but the stories of how we got the Bible that ultimately give weight and credence to everything else. Now, here's what's so important. I can't emphasize this enough. All of this began when it was clear that Jesus was not who Jesus claimed to be. This is why the story of the Bible begins in the middle and not the beginning. Because the Bible began to be birthed when everybody who followed Jesus, everybody who saw Jesus' miracles, everybody who was influenced from Jesus, everybody who said, if everybody forsakes you, I won't leave you, and then they left him. All of the people who loved, followed, believed he was Savior, Lord, Messiah, Son of God, when all of those people had given up hope and believed that Jesus was not who Jesus claimed to be, that was on the brink of the Bible being birthed. Here's what I mean. Jesus would make ridiculous claims. If you're a skeptic, this is a really important thing to look at because in every other world religion or every other figure that has started some kind of religious movement, they always have a teaching that can be carried forward so that after their death, people can continue to perpetuate those teachings or those ways of life. And every religion in the world has that. And so it's why religions have been birthed and then those religions have survived for thousands of years. The Jesus movement is different. And this is what has given historians incredible trouble. And they're still grappling with it because they can't figure out how the the movement survived without something supernatural. Because it doesn't make sense in light of every other movement. Here's what I mean. Jesus said crazy things like this. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, maybe you've heard this before, but Jesus is so clear, and this is important, to where he leaves zero middle ground with himself to where he is either a lunatic or he's the son of God. And there really is nothing in between. Well, no, he was a great teacher, philosopher, philanthropist. No, he wasn't. Anybody who is helping your community and has incredible teachings, but then they claim that they can rise from the dead or that they are somehow connected to God and they're not, we would call that someone who needs institutionalized. There's just no middle ground. I mean, Jesus left no neutral ground in terms of following him. And you don't have to follow him. I'm just telling you, that's kind of the choices. Either he's a lunatic or the son of God because he said things like, I am the resurrection of life. Unlike other religions, he didn't say, I want you to believe in my teachings about resurrection. Jesus is like, I am resurrection. He didn't say, hey, I want you to believe my teachings about life. Jesus said, I am the author of life. He said things like this, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. That's incredibly, incredibly narrow and offensive if you're somehow not the son of God. Jesus is not going, I want you to believe in my teachings about truth. He's saying, I am truth. About the way, no, no, I am the way. About life, no, no, I am the life. And so Jesus' claims were extraordinary in that Jesus positioned himself as the message And as the movement, unlike any other world religion, study it. And so when Jesus died, this is important, the message and the movement died with Jesus. 
And so the idea that Jesus was a great teacher, philosopher, philosopher, philanthropist, died, he had a lot of great stuff to take to humanity. No, no, no. That stuff never would have survived the first century because of what Jesus said about himself. So the weekend that Jesus died, the movement died with Jesus. The message died with Jesus. And everybody had given up hope. I mean, just so you know, what we celebrate is Easter every year. On Easter weekend, midpoint, like noon Saturday, there were no Jesus followers left. Nobody was following Jesus anymore because he was the movement, he was the message. And so you maybe know the story, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who was a part of basically the Supreme Court at the time. Luke records that they go toward the tomb after Jesus had been crucifixion, crucified by what they considered the art of Roman crucifixion. And it says in verse 53 that then he, Joseph of Arimathea, took down the body, wrapped it in cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one yet, yet had been laid. And then verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body had been laid in it. And then verse 56, and they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. Do you know why they went home to prepare spices and perfumes? Because in that culture, you prepare spices and perfumes for dead people. And they went to the tomb and saw a dead person. They expected a dead person. They were ready to embalm a dead person because that's what you do with dead people. And I just can't stress this enough. In this moment, they had respect for Jesus They wanted to honor Jesus, but at this point, Jesus was just another wannabe Messiah because sons of God don't die. Messiahs don't die. Those who said they've come to rescue the world don't die. And he was dead, and because he was dead, there was no movement, there was no message, there was no followers, and there was no hope. Everybody left that tomb in those hours, and they were devastated, disillusioned, Afraid, the Roman gods had won. And what we thought Jesus was gonna do, Jesus is not gonna do. And the temple religious system had won. And the whole thing is over. And if it had ended right there, this is really important. You just need to know, there would be no Bible. There would be no church. There would be no followers. There would be scraps of writing from the Torah that would be taught in universities. And you wouldn't even know the name of anything that Luke documented because that would be it right there because there was nothing to carry forward. No message, no movement, no followers. Nobody believed in Jesus anymore. You know why Luke sat down to document all of this? Do you know why Luke took I mean, excruciating pain to interview and to put this in written form is because Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus did not end with a Roman crucifixion. And that's so important because it is the only reason that we're talking about Jesus today. And this is what historians have tried to wrap their mind around now for decades and decades is how does a movement that is centered around one person, one teacher who is the message of movement, how does it survive the first century? And they're not satisfied with any of their own answers. Most of them will admit that. How in the world does this thing survive? And the reason is because Jesus predicted it, that he was gonna come, live, die, but that was 
was not the end of the story. He came to die for a reason, and then he would walk out of a grave alive. He would be seen among 500 people at one time, which kind of rules out mass hallucination. That'd have to be some strong stuff. He sees a bunch of other people in the city of Jerusalem. He has breakfast with people on the beach. There is unbelievable, overwhelming eyewitness documentation, and everybody in the city easily could have disproved it. I mean, Bob could have just walked to the tomb, grabbed the body out. They go, no, 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 he's right here. These guys are trying to perpetuate a lie. And by the way, there was nothing to gain. No followers, no side hustle book deal, not, not going to be popular. They gave up their lives for not what they believed. They gave up their lives for what they say they saw. And guys that were cowering and hiding in upper room apartments and all said, we're not going to abandon you, Jesus. And then abandoned Jesus the moment Roman guards started to cuff him. They were scared and afraid and terrified out of their mind. And then somehow within 48 hours, they roll into the streets of Jerusalem to the very people who had crucified Jesus knowing they're next on the hit list. You open your mouth and come out of hiding. They're after you next because they already killed your leader. And suddenly these cowards and runners and doubters roll into the streets of Jerusalem 48 hours later and they begin to proclaim, hey, you guys crucified Jesus. Yeah, we know it was you. Suddenly we're not afraid anymore because when your leader comes back from the dead, all fear kind of goes out the window. You guys crucified him. God raised him. We've seen him. And we had breakfast with him. Say you're sorry. Like you need to repent. God is alive. He's in this city. It's real. And suddenly cowards became proclaimers of the fact, not what they believe. People will die every day all over the world for what they believe. They died. They risked their lives for what they say they saw. In fact, Luke documented it. And in one of the messages, Peter said this in Acts 2.32, that God has raised, this was the speech to the very people who just crucified Jesus who could crucify them. What do they have to gain from this? That God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all what? We are what? Witnesses. We saw it. I'm not saying you have to believe it. I'm telling you this puts Jesus and the Jesus movement in a category by itself. We saw it. And in that moment, this is why the Bible begins in the middle and not the beginning. In that moment, the Jesus movement was born. In that moment, the church began. But here's what's really interesting. In that moment, still no Bible. Nobody had a Bible. Nobody had a bound library. They had maybe scraps of documents, but even that is a reach. Some had memorized parts of the Torah. There is no Bible. And so Luke goes on to document the rise of the Gentile church in the 30 years after the resurrection in this little um, book called Acts, which is in your New Testament. It's 30 years after the resurrection. And he talks about the rise of the Gentile church, this new movement, this in the Greek ecclesia that was going to change Western civilization. But what is so interesting to me is that it wasn't the only account. Go back to it again, Luke chapter one, verse one. Say it for me one more time. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us. And here's what you have to answer as a skeptic. If you're a skeptic and you're investigating, I say this all the time, but I need to say it a lot because in many cases you have not been welcomed with your skepticisms and doubt in the church. And that's the church's fault. 
So if you're a genuine skeptic seeking or you're just resistant, but for some reason you're here, you're listening, I wanna give you so much credit for that. But here's, here's a question for you to answer. Why in the world would be, there be so much documentation of the same event in a culture where that never happened? Way too expensive, nobody could read, you just didn't do it. Why is there over, and this is something you can study on yourself, overwhelming documentation of the same event? And the answer is somewhat simple because something extraordinary had happened. And if something extraordinary had not happened, nobody would have written it down. Nobody would have documented it. The whole idea that the Bible produced Christianity is a fallacy. Listen, the Bible didn't create Christianity any more than your birth certificate birthed you. It is a documentation of what happened. And if it hadn't happened, nobody would have cared. There was no reason to move this thing forward, but something happened they felt that needed to be preserved for the future generations. And so Peter and the guys were like, we're not getting any younger and our lives are being threatened and we don't have anything to gain from this, but we have to write this down because God has done something in our midst. And they went from running and cowering and doubting and leaving Jesus to proclaiming Jesus and documenting at the risk of their life what they saw. Peter um, dictated his account to another Greek by the name of Mark. And we know this from um, Papias, who was an early second century writer, but Mark was a fisherman. If you read his book, it's the reason that it's short, it's very to the point, and it's just very event-driven because that's how Mark would have written. And Mark was, he was in, traveling companion of Paul. He's a friend of Luke. And around the 50s, after it had been dictated to him, Mark begins to write down everything that had happened in the events in the life of Jesus. And then Matthew comes along. And Matthew was uh, someone who wrote directly to the Jews. That's why the gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have a little different perspective because all of them are writing to different audiences. And so Matthew writes to Jewish people in the first century and his whole goal was to let them know that the Messiah that had been promised, he's actually here. It's why in Matthew, over and over again, he'll reach back into the Old Testament and go, hey, God promised, God said, the prophets foretold, and God came through on his promise that Jesus has come. He is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything that God said. It's why church fathers tell us that the, the earliest manuscript of Matthew, which we don't have, is, was actually in Hebrew, which would make complete sense. Later, this is so important, it was translated to Greek, and the reason it was translated to Greek, Matthew's account, is because that became the language of the Eastern Empire. And that's important because it was letting the world know, and the world had never seen this with world religions before because religion was always nation-specific, birth-specific, people-specific, religious-specific, who you, your mom and dad were, were lineage-specific. And in this moment, as they translated in Greek, the language of the Eastern Empire, it was this kind of megaphone to the generations that this is a movement for all nations. Multicultural, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. This is for everybody. And then John comes along. And by the time John comes along, you're like, John, just chill, bro. We don't need you. Enough people have written about this, like, why do you need a bother? Why do you need to dictate this account? Everybody's already written about it. And John's like, no, no, shut up. I got to write this down. That's not, he didn't say any of that. I got to write this down. And then John specifically, even though we have all of these other accounts and extra biblical literature, John sits down 
toward the end of his life, and he tells us exactly why he writes, what he writes about the life, the message, the events of Jesus. And he says this in John 20, verse 30, that Jesus performed many other signs in the, what? Presence of his disciples, not just the, the 12 apostles, these hundreds and more, which are not recorded in this book. And again, this is so important. John is not referring to the Bible. There is no Bible. This is John writing a document about what happened. He was there. He's writing at the time when all of these people are alive and he has no idea this is gonna turn into uh, the Bible. They're not recorded in this book, but these are written. And this is so important to know the context. John's toward the end of his life and it has not gone well for him. I mean, there is so much compelling evidence, but this is some of the most compelling evidence for me. Most people will move things forward that at some level benefit them. There's no benefit. This guy, they tried to boil in oil according to extra biblical tradition. They exiled him to an island. He watched, he's like the last guy standing. All of his friends die for what they said they saw. What is this dude, no retirement plan for him. What does he have to gain from any of this? And John, as he's writing this, and he starts with, but these are written to you. He's, he's talking about the fact that as you stumble across this Bible or this document that's not the Bible, I want you to know that this thing has changed my life. And as I face the end of my life, my faith is intact, not because of what is happen, happening to me now. If John's faith was tied to his circumstances, John would have abandoned faith. Because it doesn't seem like God is answering his prayers. He's the last man surviving. He's exiled to an island. I mean, what's in it for me? But John basically is like, listen, I want to speak to future generations because this isn't based on what's currently happening. It's based on what I've seen. Something has happened in history that has changed everything. But these are written that you and you and us, whoever stumbles across this document that was not the Bible, John had no idea about the Bible as he's writing it. I want you to know that this has changed my life a witness to these extraordinary events documented it. And he said, but these are written that you may, what? That you may believe. And here's the question, believe what? Because everybody's kind of like, like, what do you want us to believe? Because for a lot of us, you may have left the faith because you don't believe it anymore. And I get that, man. And the thing is, our it's are all over the place. It, it's a false dichotomy between science and faith. It's the idea of like the miraculous and I can't get behind that seeming contradictions in the scripture. It's an event that you experience because so much of it, and I get it, is, is emotional and circumstance driven of, well, if there was a God, then this wouldn't happen or this would happen. But everybody's it is different. And so John just kind of clarifies for everybody, like what, what is the it that you don't believe? Because John, not the Bible, there's no Bible. This is John document what happened and what he saw. John tells us the only it that actually matters. But these are written that you may believe that who? Let's try one more time. I don't know if it's not bolded and that's throwing you off, but it's right there. It's right there in the verse. 
And here's the thing, man. I can tell you guys didn't go to Sunday school because if you're not sure the answer, the Sunday school answer is just throw out Jesus and you got a good shot at being right. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he's writing to one audience, which is the Jews, and they need to know he's the Messiah. The son of God, because he's also writing to Greeks and Romans, and they need to know he's the son of God. And that by, what? Believing. You may have life in Jesus' name. And here's the thing, and I'll start to wind this down. Regardless of anything else, regardless of anything else, that is the it. And in fact, that is the only it that matters. And the implication to that it is staggering. Because, just go with me a second. If John's account is all you have, John's account's all you need. If the only thing you ever came in contact with is the gospel of John, then John didn't know he was writing a gospel. He was just writing, this is, I'm just writing a thing and I'll just call it John because I don't have much creativity. John, no idea it was the Bible. The implications are staggering because over and over again, people have been appointed to John or pointed to John believing that God has done something extraordinary for all people through the form of Jesus and it is a message for all people. And it's why John in a conversation with Nicodemus drops these extraordinary, powerful and famous words that God so loved the world and I just think that like that should be the epicenter of our message that we just get that more than anything else, man. But I preach angst around this every single week. And yet in our current culture, for God so loved the world, like people want to believe that about God, but so much of what the church does does not exemplify that. And it's not God so loved the world if you clean your crap up and come to church. It's God so loved the world. While you were, to quote another passage, while you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. Why the heck can we not wrap our minds around that message? And yes, God wants to transform your life. And get, yes, God wants to do things in your life. But this is the scandalous nature of the gospel. And it does not need your control or your morality to manipulate people into behavioral modification plus grace. It's just grace. The truth is you are worse than you ever imagined. Grace is God's love is better than you can even imagine. And through Christ and what he did, you can can have a relationship with him. And the message is not get your junk together and come. The message is just come and Jesus can transform everything. God so loved the world. And stop trying to put an addendum to who's in the world category. It's everybody. And whoever you want to elevate is your worst enemy. I hate to tell you this in modern evangelical culture. God loves them with the same ferocity that he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. And whoever believes in him, the only it that matters, will not perish, or the little translation, will not be lost to God but we'll have life, everlasting life. And if that's all you ever hear, that's all you ever need. In fact, isn't it crazy that for decades, and for many of you, this is your story, friends of mine, like this is their story, that people have directed them not to the Bible, but 
to John's account first. And that person after person, thousands and thousands and thousands of people before they even read any of the rest of it went to John and they read it and they heard about the life of Jesus and they placed their faith and trust in who Jesus is. You know what's crazy to me is that John is writing this about 250 years, 270 years before there would ever be a Bible. And I'm gonna land this plane just a second, but like here's where I know that like people are all over the place. But one of my goals in these two weeks, because I have barely enough time to scratch the surface, is that God would do something in you that is just enough to get you to take a step to at least doubt your doubts. Or for some of you, you already like, you feel like I'm good, I'm confident in my faith, and yet there is so much to it that's lacking. It's just like, well, somebody told me, and so I believe it. But I'm telling you, there's so much more depth to it than that. And I'm telling you, the scriptures are living and they're powerful. But here's where I want to be sensitive to you, and this wasn't in my notes, it just came out for service. But here's the other thing I know. For some of you, Regardless of the story of the Bible, one of the obstacles is the fact that somebody took the Bible and utilized it as a weapon or a bat to beat you over the head with it. And they leveraged the very words of God to wound people who are made in the image of God. And so this is unpopular thing sometimes because every time I say it, I get feedback somewhere. I'm gonna say it anyway. Anything that causes trauma or somebody utilizes to cause trauma, you have to kind of, kind of unwind yourself from that in order to come back and really engage with it in a way that's healthy. And for some of you, and I've literally, this is, don't put this on social media. I've literally sat down with people to go, you maybe need to walk away from scripture for a season, not forever, but you need to reorient yourself around who Jesus is, what he's inviting you into. You need to deal with some of this stuff and then come back to it because this is just the nature of trauma. Trauma, when somebody leverages and uses something to wound you, you make connections between that and then the essence of whatever that thing is. And so for many of you, you've never been able to get to the heart of Jesus because somebody has so wounded you with the Bible that you can't unclutter that from what Jesus is and what Jesus is inviting you into. But my hope is that somewhere along the way, because Jesus is after you and leading you back and, and constantly pursuing you, is that you'll just start to take another step in that direction again to give it another run and to give it another look. And I get it, man. I could talk all day about this. But in a lot of cases, the Jesus of the scriptures, what God has communicated through his word in the Bible, it is very different than what you have experienced and what's been communicated to you. And I just tell you, with sensitivity to what some of you experience, it's changed my life. Now, the other thing is, I gotta go because I'm getting a little bit on tangents, but the Bible is not the center and the essence of our faith either. Jesus is. And that's not semantics. That's really, really important. The Bible, as I believe, inspired and powerful as it is, it is a means to an end. And the end is to get to know Jesus and surrender your life to him. Some people stop at elevating the Bible as on par with God and they never move past theology and information. And so they know a ton about the Bible and they don't really know Jesus. 
In fact, I was at a conference um, a few days ago and I was listening to a well-respected um, author and he was laying out this whole thing about deconstruction, which some of you will relate to. And he had on the bottom of the screen, I won't give you all the context, but he had like a big slide, Holy Spirit, they were like building blocks, Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus. And then he, he had all these other things above it that, that are kind of necessary in terms of growing in community with, with God, Trinity, um, which I don't have time to explain. And so he had like community, you know, the Bible, all these other, and somebody raised their hand and I'm not throwing shots at them, but just I'm sure they're great. They raised their hand. They're like, shouldn't the Bible be the biggest block on the screen? No, no. <laughs> Jesus is the biggest block on the screen. Like the Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus. This is a means to an end to get to know him. But the idea that in some cases we've actually elevated the scripture, which again, because people will misquote me, is inspired. It's God's word. It's how, one of the ways we get to know him. But it's not greater than Jesus. It's a means to get to know who Jesus is. And it's my hope that some of you would re-engage. I could tell you story after story of, of, of just what God has done through this, of, of walking through uh, a death really close to me. And I'll never forget Psalm 146 jumping off the pages to me because I just was taught to read this at an early age. And it just, I can't explain it. It's, there's this verse about the scriptures being living and powerful. And if you've never experienced it, it's hard to communicate it. But it led me through that season. And it's like that somehow God through that was speaking to me. It was me sitting on a beach, Anna Maria Island, at a pivotal point in my life where I felt like God was calling me to something and I was running so hard, so hard. And I was so afraid because I didn't think that I was capable of what God was calling me into. I'll never forget reading Old Testament story of Jonathan and, and David, and I'm not gonna recount it, but there's this whole story where Jonathan, one of my favorite, where, where they're, basically being confronted by the Philistines and nobody seems to be acting. And so Jonathan's just like, well, we gotta go. And then he, this incredible line, he's like, and maybe God will be with us. And I can't explain it, but it was like God was, this is what God's calling me to. And I would just begin to pray, okay, God, this is what I think I'm supposed to do. Because by the way, most decisions were about 60% certain. If you're waiting for God to just, the clarity, it doesn't. Clarity always precedes obedience. And so I just stepped to go, okay, God, this is what I think you want. Hopefully you'll be with me through this. Or I'll never forget like being so disillusioned with the Christian machinery and evangelical culture, even though I've been called to lead it. And just feeling like it was so detached from what I knew about Jesus. And so I just camped out in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I just read about Jesus and I just, I just followed him through the gospels and my suspicions were confirmed that there's so much, and not just out here, but in my own life that looks nothing like Jesus. And it's just hard to put into words, but it has changed and impacted every part of my life to the point, I'm not asking you to do this, but I, just, to me, I read through this cover to cover every 10 months because I just so am moved by it. And so my hope is that you would just take a step Whatever that step is. In fact, for the next two weeks, we're doing this thing called overviewing the scriptures during the 11 a.m. So next week, the 8th, and then the 15th. And my hope is just some of you, like, when are you gonna take a step? 
Like you, you're, you're curious, you have doubts, I'm confident, but I don't know why I'm confident. I'm on the verge of walking away. Okay, so you owe it to you then to take a step, and I get it. You're gonna get busy. Kickoff is looming at one o'clock today. You got wings that are in the oven. You got other busy stuff this week. There's another ball game and another tournament. And the thing is, man, I know I'm convicting everybody in this room. You walk out and you feel this thing and you don't do anything with it. And you owe it to yourself with what is at stake to actually take a step. Why do I believe this? Why should I believe this? Is any of this real? And then if you walk away and go, no, no, I don't believe any of it. Well, at least you are intellectually honest with yourself because you owe it to yourself to not live the rest of your life with all that hangs in the balance and not take a step. So my hope is like the next two weeks that you would just, you would take a step, not only for connection, but for growth and that God would do something in your life. But with that said, and I gotta, I gotta wind this down. So this is the, the last part of it. As you arrive at the end of this first century, as John's writing his document, with all of these collected writings, there's still no Bible. And this is interesting. There's no Bible. And yet there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus before there was ever a, the Bible. And there are thousands, you study for yourself, thousands of documentations of the life and the message of Jesus. And imagine how valuable these things were. Imagine if your parents had heard Peter and John speak. Imagine if you had heard the stories. I mean, if anybody has been handed down letters or a journal for somebody you respect or, you know, in your family lineage, that thing is like one of those valuable things to you. Imagine how valuable these documents are. And what you need to know, because most of the, the um, critique Textual criticism came many, many hundreds of years later, but from the beginning, these accounts were considered valuable and reliable. They were considered sacred and inspired. They were considered scripture long before 250, 270 years before there was uh, the Bible. And now, and I'll end it with this, the empire is suspicious of Christians, not so much because of what they believe, but because of what they didn't believe, because they said, no, 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 there's not the God's pantheon of gods, which is what every religion believes. There's just a God. And the sea and Caesar is not our Lord. And they, you know, in the words of um, Stevie Wonder, they were very suspicious people. And so they thought like, well, okay, then anything that bad happens because there's a connection with the gods, it must be these followers of the way because they've dissed Caesar. They don't believe in the gods because they thought you got to appease the gods. You got to keep the gods happy. You got to make sure the God, in fact, second, third century Christian author Tertullian said this. He kind of summarized that culture. If the Tiber floods the city or if the Nile refuses to rise or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised. Christians to the lions because they thought well it's you guys you're not keeping the gods happy because their whole, whole goal was keep the gods happy at all times and the gods would demonstrate their approval or disapproval through nature and so in 303 AD 303 Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that resulted in the worst state sponsored persecution of Christians to date and they would go into the places where they worshiped and they destroyed, I mean, utterly destroyed them. Ripped families apart. Gathering was completely forbidden. That's really important. And they mandated the destruction of all Christian writings. And so people in that moment began to hide and bury all of these collections. And Christians, so important, died rather than give them up. 
They died because they believed that God had shown up and done something in the person of Jesus and they were willing to collect, preserve, not the Bible. There was no Bible. There was just scraps of writing. They were willing to collect these documents because they believed that God had done something in their midst and they did not give up their lives for what they believed. They gave up their lives for what they say they saw. And you maybe know this from history. In that moment, that was the tipping point the movement of Jesus exploded. And then eventually tensions eased and hostilities were eased in AD 324, Constantine the Great, who was the undisputed, by that time, emperor of the empire, decided that he was going to ease all of the sanctions. He was gonna return property and Christianity in that moment without Christians ever raising a sword, assembling an army, no influence. You hear me talk about this all the time. No money, no leverage became the preferred religion of the empire. And for the first time, scholars who were hiding and cowering, afraid for their life, were able to go out into the open and to begin to document all of these writings. And the stage was set for the assembly of the first Tabiblia, or the Bible. And here's the thing, and thank you so much for that. <laughs> I, I, I was so, seriously, thank you. One of the big obstacles for a lot of us is the story of Genesis. But the story of the Bible begins in the middle, not at the beginning. But what I want to do next week is I want to go back to the beginning because for some of you, what has been the major obstacle to your faith, if I can put it in a new context, was actually the thing for ancient Jewish people that validated their faith and their belief in Jesus. So do not miss next week. But what I want you to understand more than anything else is the foundation of our faith is Jesus. And because something extraordinary happened in history, it birthed a movement. And hundreds and hundreds of years later, after thousands of people had already upended an empire, we began to get uh, the Bible. But all of this happened way before the Bible because God had done something in our midst and people saw it and they copied it and they preserved it and they gave their lives for it. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in this moment. And I am well aware that the subject matter hits in a million different directions. And so I, I pray for some that, I just, I just want to pray for this group. I pray for the group that has been so wounded by the very words of God. I pray for the people that are online via radio that are, are sitting physically in here today. And I mean, one of the big obstacles, and they would maybe even admit this is not even intellectual, it's just what they've experienced. It's how they've been treated. And somebody used the name of Jesus to mistreat and hurt. And I just pray in some way, and I can't do this, but I pray that you would, that you would begin to speak to them specifically about who you are, about what you're offering and about what Jesus is really about. I pray for others of us who have had confidence and we believe it and that settles it. That God, you would just, you would just prod us on to go deeper in our faith and our understanding in a post-Christian culture where people all around us have questions. For others, where we're maybe on the verge of walking away or we just have a ton of doubts or we already walked away. God, I just pray that you'd begin to maybe just renew our mind and give us 
some doubts, to begin to doubt, to be intellectually honest about some of the things that we're walking through. And even if we never embrace faith, I just pray that we'd be honest enough to genuinely seek you. So whatever your thing is, do your thing in these weeks as people take the step into this short-term group. God, I pray that you would use it in a powerful way. And we pray all of this in the incredible name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.